0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Carolyn Kuski, the Executive Director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. We cover a lot of ground, how wildfires drove a California utility into bankruptcy, and what needs to change to prevent this in the future. We also talk about the dysfunctional nature of flood and disaster insurance and why it's so hard to reform. We also dig into how low-income households need better access to disaster insurance. And a favorite of mine, why Florida keeps making crazy and poorly thought out flood insurance decisions. And the word crazy is mine, not Carolyn's. Just want to point that out. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Really useful information on the bread and butter issues of adaptation policy. I hope you enjoy. Now come join my conversation with Dr. Carolyn Kouski. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Carolyn is the Executive Director at the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also directs the Policy Incubator. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi. Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. Very excited for this conversation. I think, uh, my listeners are going to get a lot of useful information. But first off, I just, what is the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center?
1: Yeah, good question. We are a research center that's affiliated with Wharton, which is the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. The center's been around for almost 35 years doing research on risk management topics and also from the name, decision processes topics, which is how people make decisions and cases of risk and uncertainty. I've only been up at the center for a couple of years, but had been working with folks here for a long time before that.
0: Okay. So we had a previous conversation and I, I feel like we're old friends, right? We're, we're like,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. This name, Risk Management and Decision Processes Center.
1: Um, <laughs> I know it's a mouthful. People just tend to say the risk center because it's a lot easier. Oh, that's you know?
0: good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need some rebranding, but yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure with the clients you work with, it doesn't matter so much. But you know, a good acronym helps too.
1: It does. That's true.
0: <laughs> okay, so speaking of your background, could you? What is your vice? So you've only been there a couple of years. That was one of my questions. How long have you been there? And so, what kind of led you there? What, what sort of is is your background that kind of got you where you're at right now?
1: So, before coming up here, I spent almost a decade at an environmental economics think tank in Washington, D.C., called Resources for the Future. They do academic research on environmental economics topics, and they like to say, which I kind of like, that in, they, they act a lot like a university, but instead of teaching undergraduates, they educate policymakers. So all of the work is really applied about the impacts of public policy, and that's really my interest is in policy. I got my PhD in public policy from Harvard, and I, from there, I went straight to resources for the future. So that's my background. Yeah, and I've been thinking about risk and disasters that whole time.
0: Oh, something fun to think about all the time. And, and your undergrad was at, at Stanford, right? Yes. Yeah. I do a lot of homework on my guests. And as I was doing homework on you and then the Risk Center is that it? I couldn't quite figure out all the things that you do. And I thought the question here was if you were sitting on the bus next to someone and you had to quickly describe what you do, how, how would you describe it?
1: Yeah. Well, let me maybe take it for the center first. And I think it's easiest to think of the center's activities as being in three kind of big buckets. So one is the research we do, and we do a variety of research on risk-related topics. A lot of that has to do with natural hazards and public policy around hazards, but we also do a lot on other perils like terrorism and cyber and political risk. Often our work is on the policy, sort of where the private and public sector meet, and we also do a bunch of research on how people think about risks, their risk perceptions, sort of best practices in risk communication. So that's all our research. Then I think we also act as a bridge and we're a bridge between the researchers who think about these topics at the University of Pennsylvania and a variety of public and private stakeholders. So we'll work with public decision makers that are thinking about risk um, topics and private sector folks who are thinking about it and help draw stronger linkages between research and practice. And then the third is this new effort, which is our policy incubator, which was set up to be a lot like a business incubator, only instead of incubating new You know, entrepreneurs or product ideas. We try to incubate new public policy ideas that could be transformative in promoting household and community resilience, but still have some kinks that have to be worked out right before they're ready to be piloted or implemented. And that's where we come in.
0: Okay. And I'm going to have a lot more questions about the policy incubator, but I thought what we do is just kind of jump right in. I think the original uh, topic that kind of brought us together is that you've been doing some research on California and their liability laws. And so a lot of folks know is like PG and E is the um, energy utility out there. And there was a wildfire and there was some property damage, but I'm going to leave it up to you to kind of describe what's going on out there.
1: Yeah, so California, as I'm sure most listeners are aware, had a couple really bad wildfire years. And there's a lot of concern that with climate change, wildfires are just going to keep getting worse in the state. And that poses a whole bunch of problems, but it also poses some particular problems for the electric utilities. And that is because the state has this funny legal regime that is almost unique in the country that holds electric utilities strictly liable for any property damage associated with a wildfire that was started by their equipment. So let's maybe unpack that a little bit. So wildfires can start for a whole bunch of different reasons, right? And one of them could be because there is electric power infrastructure in high risk areas. And maybe, you know, a stick hits a line and it goes down and it sparks and that starts a wildfire. And the ways that electric infrastructure could start a fire could depend on actions that the utility takes, or they could not, right? And so it could be that electric utilities are doing everything to kind of trim trees and keep them away from their lines and upgrade their Infrastructure, but it just so happens that there's a drought and high temperatures and really high winds that blow something into the line and it was really beyond their control. And that distinction between whether they did anything wrong or not doesn't matter in the state for whether they have to pay for property damages. And so if that happens and a fire starts and it spreads rapidly and it ends up burning down a bunch of structures, as has happened, you know, in the last couple of years in California, then the electric utilities can be forced to pay for all those property damages, and that's true even if the folks have insurance. So even if you have insurance on your property and it burns down, the insurance company can have the utilities pay. And so that's created a number of problems for the electric utilities and raised these questions of who really should be paying for property damages? Should ratepayers be paying for it? Should shareholders? Should the people who choose to live in the high risk areas? You know, how do you distribute the costs of wildfires? And that's actually a question across so many natural disasters, right? Who's going to pay for all this damage?
0: Okay. So maybe you can clarify a lot of things. I remember when PG&E went bankrupt and it's an electric utility and I don't, is it a completely private one or is it public private? How does a semi-public utility go bankrupt?
1: Yeah. So it is a private, you know, it's a public company, right? So it's not a government entity. There are some public utilities in the state and so it had shareholders there's essentially three very large utilities in the state that are under that model and apparently i think they you know they've faced bankruptcy problems before unrelated to wildfire but yeah so they're in bankruptcy court and being restructured and um you know that's going to be hashed out by
0: the bankruptcy court okay yeah that was my next question so what's happening this happened last year and i that was got it had all this big news but there's still someone's still delivering electricity through the utility. And if it's just going through this yes. bankruptcy yeah, court, yeah, they're
1: still delivering electricity. Yeah. And I should say that I think it's important to separate out two issues which are getting conflated a little bit and talking about this in the state. And one is, you know, did PG&E do something wrong? Did they not invest a lot in safety? Was there sort of a poor culture of risk management? Should they have been, you know, upgrading their infrastructure? You know, there was just a big news article on this. And that's a question about about the company and how it was run. And I don't know anything about that. I've never studied PG&E. I can't say whether they're a good company or not. And then there's this broader policy question on how we fund damages from wildfires and what the role of utilities is and I can speak to that but I want to be clear that when I'm speaking to that policy question I am not saying one thing or another about what kind of company PG&E is.
0: Well, I'll leave it. I'll say it. <laughs> What's happening now the the part of the some of the information you shared with me is that, you know, California has these odd liability laws and maybe someone wouldn't say they're odd, but are they going to reform them as PG and E's in bankruptcy court?
1: Yeah, so this has now gotten a lot of attention and the governor put together a task force that has been looking into this and a report was issued So there's been a number of groups thinking about this. Legislation was actually just introduced and has passed one chamber. So they're thinking about how you essentially fix this so that your utilities aren't going bankrupt. Um, So far, those solutions have not been focused on actually just reforming this liability regime, which is called inverse condemnation, because one thing you could do is just reform this regime so that they're not held strictly liable, right? So, But a whole number of other issues (laughs) come up. And so some of the work we've done is thinking about if utilities do have to pay these third-party costs associated with wildfire, how do they fund them? Um, what kind of financing arrangements um, are used. And those are the types of things the state's now
0: struggling with. Maybe you haven't found this. And I, I got a little bit of background on the California wildfire situation. I did this whole California DAP series and got to talk to some folks there. It's really interesting. And so there's still a lot of growth in California. And I think of the liability associated with PG&E. And okay, there's all this public interface with these rural areas that are under wildfire threat. And you have local zoning laws that are encouraging this growth or not preventing it. And so is there any talk of coming up with, I guess, laws that are going to benefit the utility company that they're not going to be liable that it, let's say a local government allows, uh, you know, building in an area that's really prone to wildfire. Is there areas that you could sort of the state could help out the utility so they're not at so much liability?
1: Yeah. And I think you've hit on what makes this a difficult problem, right? Which is that there are so many different entities that are contributing to this risk so there's not just one entity that can you know fully manage it so wildfire risk depends on where people decide to buy homes. It depends on what local governments do in terms of their zoning and where they allow construction to take place. It depends on the land use policies that the community and the households adopt. You know, are they clearing defensible space? Is the development clustered together? Is it flung out all through the wildland-urban interface? And that also, and those patterns also aren't just about, you know, people's preferences. Some of it is, I like to be out in nature. It's beautiful, but it also has to deal with the affordable housing crisis in the state and where people can afford to live, right? So you have some high risk areas that people are choosing to live in because there's such wonderful amenities and other towns that are out in some of these risky areas because that's where it's affordable. And a lot of California cities are less affordable, right? And so all these policies and then there's the state building codes and how you build a structure also determines whether it's likely to burn or not. And so obviously in an extreme type of fire building might do less, but there's a lot that can be done to prevent, you know, like an ember that flies ahead from actually igniting your home. And a lot of those building codes haven't been updated. And so, you know, there's just so many different facets to managing this risk and how we treat our forests and how we manage them, which is like, you know, decades of forest management. And then on top of it, you have climate as a for, as a stressor, right? So, and that's not just more drought, more heat, but that's also things like, which can kill trees and make them more flammable, but also things like allowing pine beetles to overwinter, which can then stress the forest. So you have so much interconnected. It makes it a very tricky problem.
0: That was very helpful. And it's just got me thinking all sorts of ways of how we're kind of doing adaptation on the ground. And and it occurs to me that it's a lot of interest in making someone liable for climate change. And, you know, there's these court cases about, you know, hitting the energy companies because they're contributing to it. And I think People are kind of looking for a, a villain, and I just wonder, and maybe the utility is just the wrong person to kind of knock, but, you know, you try to downscale climate change. And so here's the impact, and work with me on this, is like the wildfire, increased wildfire due to climate change. And so the PG&E is liable because you, you they're, what happened there on the land, and we have increased risk. Someone wants someone to pay based on what's happening with climate change. And so that whole idea of being downscaled in this utility company is now paying – is maybe a strategy people want to use to say someone is going to be at, like pay for all these climate impacts, and be it sea level rise, be it flooding, and here's wildfire. And I know there's all sorts of things wrong, maybe the utility company really is sort of the wrong person to kind of hold liable, but you see what I'm saying is like downscaling yeah, no, the do. climate legal risk.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a desire to try to simplify the problem, right? And it's just a lot easier if you can point your finger at one entity and come up with one solution. And I think part of the challenge with adaptation more broadly, you've really hit it on the head, is that it permeates all aspects of decision-making at all scales. And it's also not something that you can just do and fix, but it's something that has to be ongoing all the time. And the work that we've done in California on the electric utilities has made me increasingly concerned that there's probably a number of public policies and institutional arrangements that have been set up that before we started really experiencing climate impacts might not have been ideal, but didn't really cause a lot of problems. But then when you add all the stressors of climate change on top of them, they really become untenable anymore. And I think that this strict liability in California is one such example. When you didn't have these really extreme wildfires all the time, it didn't create the financial problems for utilities. And so even if it maybe wasn't an ideal legal regime, it didn't matter as much. But now under this under a warming world, it actually is causing a lot of problems, and I think there's a number of things like that, right? You could think you could think about, you know, coastal development or the, you know, the financial structure of our flood insurance program, or a number of things that, when you add the increasing risk and increasing damages, all of a sudden become really problematic.
0: Just kind of the wrapping up the California stuff. I got a lot more questions here, and so are you going to stay involved? Are you going to just be part of this?
1: Yeah, we've actually started now at the center. Um, some folks and I at the center have. I've now been thinking a little bit more broadly about the damages that wildfires pose to the states and moving just beyond utilities and thinking about exactly as you and I were just talking about some of these questions of risk ownership, right? So who has the ability to actually influence the magnitude of the risk and the authority to do so, and who bears the consequences of the magnitude of that risk. And the fact that those are disconnected a lot creates a lot of incentive problems in the state. So if you think about like your car, so you fully own the risk of the car and all the things Uh, So if something bad happens, you pay for it. If there's a property, if you get in an accident, right, and your car gets beat up, you know, maybe you have insurance, but you paid for that insurance. Like, that's all on you. But also the likelihood that you get in a crash is all on you, too. You can, you know, drive safer or not speed and, you know, drive less. There's a number of things. Buy a safer car. So you kind of own the whole risk. And that makes that an easier thing to manage. But if you think about wildfires, we were just talking about, there's so many people contributing to the risk. And then the people contributing to the risk, and by people, I mean entities and institutions as well. I'm just kind of talking in shorthand. So there's so many contributors to the risk. And then the people who are ultimately bearing the cost of the risk are often really different. So it creates incentive problems, right? So And the people bearing the risk are often really diffuse. If you think about, for example, all the health impacts from the smoke that extended all over the state and beyond the state. And so that makes it a thorny problem to manage. So we're starting to get our hands around that.
0: So I want to pivot again back to the yeah. po- policy incubator because I'm very curious about this, and you, you briefly sort of talked about it. And I know it, it's you, you. I guess you co-direct it there, but what is it really? And I have some questions of like sort of the products and like the applications of what you do there. But I mean, what what are you really trying to accomplish with the incubator?
1: So it's a super good question, and it's really new. I mean, it's only been up for like a little more than a year. And so I think the first thing I'd say is that this is an experiment and a work in progress, and we're trying to learn by doing which is also fun but i don't think we have exactly one template on how this works all the time um so we've now completed a few different projects and you know maybe i could maybe it'd be useful to just talk through one or two of them
0: right i was gonna say so like maybe there's a good example i was gonna ask you walk us through the life cycle of like a a one that you're working on kind of thing
1: let me tell you maybe the idea that's Bird, the creation of the incubator that we actually never did, but, but I think it kind of, I think it maybe summarizes well what we are trying to accomplish with it. And that is that a number of years ago, the faculty co-director of the risk center and the founder of the risk center, Howard Conruther, and I were at a conference in California on earthquake insurance. And, you know, 10 to 15% of people have earthquake insurance, and this is going to create a lot of financial hardship for families when there's a really big earthquake in California, so there was a lot of talking about how do we get more people to realize the value of insurance? How do we get them insured? And one policy proposal that was put on the table was, you know, can we harness behavioral economics? And maybe if we make earthquake insurance a default option, so it's automatically included in your homeowner's policy and you'd have to opt out of it, that more people would do it. Because we know from other applications that when you make something a default option, most people tend to just keep it because they just do. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you, look, but most of the work that's been done on that, okay. So that was the idea. Let's just make it a default option, and then lots of people will insure. But that actually is not really ready to be implemented yet, and there's a number of problems. So the first one is that those findings that people stick with default options come from experiments and examples where the option is pretty costless to them. So, for example, whether or not you know, you're automatically an organ donor or you're not. That's been one paper that got a lot of attention. So things like that, but where it doesn't actually cost you a lot of real money right now. I think in the case of earthquake insurance, it's quite possible that people think that it's an expensive product that doesn't meet their needs, that they might not need, and that they might opt out in droves, and then you haven't really achieved anything. So the first thing that has to be done is some research on whether these findings from opt out apply in the case of catastrophe insurance. And that hasn't been done yet. So that's a research piece that the policy incubator would do. The second thing is a stakeholder engagement piece. How would people feel about having this automatically be a default? How would insurers feel about it? How would legislators feel about it? All of that would have to be worked through. So that engagement piece would be another thing that the incubator would do. And then we talked to some folks at the California earthquake authority who said our financing is not set up to cover an 80% take-up rate in the state. We'd have to completely rethink our financing model if we were really getting to that type of uptake for earthquake insurance. So there's an entire financing piece, which is also you know, a question of how you design these public-private partnerships, they would have to be answered. And so all those questions are something that the policy incubator would engage in to at the end of the day say, this is a great idea, but this is how you'd have to do it. This is how you'd have to tweak it. Here's the policy proposal for you to pilot or implement or to say, you know what, this has some fatal flaws and this is not the way to achieve higher take-up rates, so let's stop wasting intellectual capital on it and move on to other solutions. You know, so it would be a number of different yeah. things all supporting an idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I've, and i in previous lives, I've been involved with like policy development and all the, how you get to to that stage. And I'm sort of, I've always been interested in, it's sort of a boring thing to be interested in, is that you create a policy, but is it applied or who's taking it up? And even if there was this sort of demand for it, I don't know if you guys as academics and experts sort of say, these are the areas and you kind of reach out to your partners or your partners are sort of saying, this is an area that we need help on. And I'm sure it's sort of a combo of both?
1: No, that's a really good question. And it's something that we've been debating. And I think people here have different thoughts on, right? So one is like, you really need the policy maker or the entity that's really excited to run with it once you have it, and that we really shouldn't be engaging in projects unless we have sort of like a policy client. And the other hand, though, is this thinking that, you know, policy windows open up at certain points. And in order to take advantage of those, you really have to have done all the thought work ahead of time. And so maybe there's something to saying, hey, we think this is a neat idea that needs some investigation and it's not going to go anywhere right now. But next time there's a policy window and people are ready to start thinking about this again, we have it already completed. So I think there's a balance there, and I think people yeah, come down on different sides of
0: it. And, and really drilling down into policies that, okay, whoever kind of originates the thought is, let's say you have a successful process where you're working with partners, you're the stakeholder, and you create a, just a solid policy recommendation or be it a report, and then – thud. What happens next? And so this process of whoever, let's say it's a local government, it's a state government that's ultimately going to benefit from it. You've given it to them, and maybe there was even partners there who've taken it. But I mean, how do you guys define success? Oh, they actually took our recommendations and they're now using it in flood insurance or wildfire management. Are you able to track that?
1: Yeah, I think that's another really important question and one that not only we're struggling with, but all researchers who do applied work struggle with, right? It's really easy to measure the success of research in terms of, you know, journal publications or citations. It's a lot harder to measure the impact of research on the world. And sometimes that impact is really tangible and you can see that there is a clear policy recommendation and that it was adopted, but lots of times it's sort of contributing to A public discourse that takes a long time to mature and come to fruition. And there's so much contribution. It's very difficult to isolate, you know, one thread and say, this is the impact it had. And so I think, I think you're raising a very, you know, important question for how we measure all research. And we'd like to do more. And what we're trying to do more is to rethink engagement with decision makers so that it's not just we have this report and we drop it on people's desks and we walk away, but more of sort of co-producing the questions and the answers so that I think there's a lot of times where academics are not answering questions that decision makers actually need answered. Right. And so part of it is also engaging with decision makers much, much earlier in the research process and doing that in a collaborative way way. Right. And I think sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder. And I'll just say if there's anyone listening who is on the sort of one of these decision makers, we are really open to talking with folks and getting a better understanding of how we can be helpful. So we've also been trying to listen a lot to some of the people we work with. So and and some of the decision makers we talk to about how we can best engage. And I'll sorry, I'm going to keep going. Which is that, you know, because I think this is a difficult topic is also that you know, we produce research that we want to be independent and we want it to be unbiased and at high academic standards. And so we can do that through, you know, the normal academic processes of peer review and everything. Um, but when you start talking about policy research, you know, it often gets a little tricky of how far we want to go in promoting particular, very specific policy recommendations or not. And sometimes I feel like we have research and background to be very specific. And sometimes we just don't, you know, we might have personal opinions, but we don't have research to back any, like a very specific recommendation. And sometimes we do. So it kind of varies a lot too.
0: My experience is, you know, there's quite a few nonprofits that I think have sort of a top to bottom like expertise. They're helping develop policies, but then they're also helping potentially implement. And I just, I think universities, you guys, probably it's more of a capacity thing that you guys obviously generating great work, but I think university offices could benefit from just having, you know, staff that's all about sort of landing the airplane or just closing the deal. And I think once you come up with these recommendations and your client just literally might not know what to do with it, it makes sense to them. But it's like, oh, well, this needs to be a change to a regulation or this needs to be actual legislation. And Getting the help to actually do those kind of things. And it, it, it's not as obvious, I think, as you realize. And maybe that is staffing that happens at an institute like yours. And you need to kind of close the deal. And it's not that easy sometimes.
1: No, I think that's right. Kind of two things to react to what you just said. One is that I think that academics really like to focus on first best solutions and think about how you'd solve problems in the absence of all the messy politics. And so but that can often be not really helpful because some of the ideas are just so politically non starters. And so once you start weighing into the political process, then things get messier. And I think a lot of academics maybe get more uncomfortable. Right. Right. And so, you know, coming back to the California wildfire stuff you know, my very personal feeling after looking at all this is that I don't think that this inverse condemnation liability regime makes a whole lot of sense. And I think that there's maybe better ways to apportion responsibility, but I don't think that that's a political starter right now in the state, right? So they're looking at other ways to deal with it. And so, you know, so to be helpful to the state now, it's important to not just keep (laughs) talking about what might be first best, right? But thinking about what's actually politically possible.
0: Hey, Adapters, we'll be right back with Carolyn Kuski after a few updates. I have mentioned before, and I will keep mentioning, we started this resource, podcast in the Classroom. So if you're interested in using America DApps in your classroom for students or even professional workshops, check it out. It's being led by... Kate Bishop-Williams out of the University of Waterloo in Canada. Basically, each episode, Kate and a small team listen to my most recent episode, then develop discussion guides that will be available in the show notes. These guides have been a great resource for educators, and we are so excited to see them developing to better suit the needs of other educators. Now, if you have questions about this, please email me or there's there's contact information for Kate Bishop-Williams. Hopefully, people will recognize the value of podcasts as an educational resource. One of the joys of this podcast is I hear from so many people. Lately, I've been hearing from quite a few people looking to go to school and study adaptation. People want me to recommend schools and professors that they can reach out to. This is fun for me, and I love brainstorming with these people on where they potentially might study this emerging field. I don't always have the answers, but I do have some connections. And and if you yourself are a student and you're looking at going to graduate school, please do reach out. And I like to touch upon this issue uh, quite frequently on the podcast. Also, it's been many months in the making, but I'm working on a Twitter town hall with some tech folks. These guys reached out to me and offered to help what I'm doing here with the podcast and to help me get more exposure. I have these people reaching out all the time. It really is is quite dazzling. And so I'll have more information on them soon. But what I'm doing is setting up this Twitter event where it'll be in real time. And we'll have a date set out soon. I'll share on social media. But basically, it's going to be me and a guest, maybe even a previous guest, where you can come in in real time using the Twitter platform to ask us questions in real time. And so uh, I'm hoping it's just a chance to be a little bit more relaxed and kind of engage with people that are on the podcast. Okay, I'll be going to Gainesville, Florida in the fall to be leading a podcast workshop at a science communication event the University of Florida is leading. If you're interested in learning more about how podcasting can be a tool in the communication that you do, please reach out. Also, if your organization is interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are many adaptation stories to tell. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. You've heard me talk about these in the past. I've worked with American Forest, worked with World Wildlife Fund. If you think you have a story to tell, you want to share it over a podcast and not through a report or a short video, reach out. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, also contact me. My email is americadapts at gmail.com. I've been doing keynote presentations, and I love talking in front of people, sharing stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. and. I like to think I talk about adaptation ways that are going to inspire you and also inform you about this emerging issue. So again, you can reach me at the website americadaps.org. AmericaAdaps is now available on Pandora Music. Just searched for it within Pandora, and Pandora is still somewhat selective on the podcast that they have brought on onto their app, and I, I made it, so I'm very excited about that. And so depending on what your preferred app is for listening to podcasts, you can now listen to a podcast on Pandora. Okay, Adapters, let's get back to our conversation with Carolyn Kuski. Okay, I'm doing another hard pivot on you here. And uh, you've done a lot of work in flood risk and flood insurance. And I want to start with a simple question. Why are are flood insurance policies so dysfunctional?
1: Path dependency.
0: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Okay. explain.
1: (laughs) You know, I think a lot of the challenges that people see with the flood insurance program today go back to decisions really early in the program's history. And it's just impossible once you have a program that's been around for 50 years to wipe the slate clean and totally start over. Right. So it's all about incremental adjustment at this point. That's kind of the easy answer, I think. Oh, there's so many places we could start with flood well, insurance.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I got some prompting questions here. Maybe it, we, it'll help you kind of flesh that out. But in bringing climate change into this, and I'm sure that's keeping you busy, sort of overlaying risk that has always been an issue. Risk just has—I mean, climate change has not a new thing with risk management, but. You think about some of these flooding events, and you, you hear terms, and this actually goes into policies, one in a 100-year event, one in a 500-year event. And it seems like these events are becoming just – it's silly to even use that terminology, and yet those kind of measures are still driving actual policies. And so are things changing? Or, I've probably heard of the Ellicott City example in Maryland, and they had like two, one-in-a-thousand-year flooding events within three years. And are policies changing to adjust to this?
1: That's a really good point. I mean, so yeah, flood risk is increasing around the country, and it's for a number of different reasons, right? So we're seeing more intense precipitation events, which is making stormwater flooding a much bigger issue in communities all over the country. On the coast, we're talking about sea level rise coupled with erosion and subsidence, making coastal flooding a much bigger problem. And so I completely agree that talking about things in terms of one in a 100-year floods that's sort of based on historic data that doesn't account for change is not really helpful at this point. And there's been a, number of studies that have been done showing you know how those have changed over time and i'm sure you've seen some of them i think we also, when it comes specifically to flooding, there's a, there's sort of three big problems I see with the way we talk about flood risk in this country. And the first is that we talk about flooding in this in-out way. And that goes back to these FEMA flood maps that were never designed to be ideal risk communication products. And yet they've become the de facto risk communication tool in our country because there's nothing else that's free and universally available and linked um, to all our programmatic and regulatory things. And so these maps that were really designed to implement the insurance program have become risk communication products. And what you need to implement the insurance program is you have to know where that hundred year, um, they call it the special flood hazard area, where that boundary is, because inside it, there's a mandatory purchase for insurance for certain households, and inside it, local governments have to adopt different building codes. And so that line becomes really important to implement these two requirements, right? But that's made us talk about flood risk like you're in or you're out and you're safe or you're at risk, when really flood risk varies across the landscape. And even within the 100-year floodplain, some areas are much more risky than others. And we know that risk extends far beyond the 100-year floodplain. And as you just mentioned, what was a 100-year floodplain you know, yesterday is not what it's going to be tomorrow. And so all of that has created a big problem that we talk about flood risk like it's binary when it's not. I think that's problem number one.
0: I was just going to say, like, if you're in a position where you're actually making some recommendations, you're working with a client and you you have to kind of defer, oh, well, the FEMA maps or something very technical, some data driven information that you feel you need to include. But I mean, are you even comfortable putting down this? this and in this area, there's a one in a 500 year uh, planning event. Do you still defer to those numbers?
1: Good question. So, are you asking whether decision makers should, or whether we at the center use you them? do
0: at the center? Like, don't you feel uh, I'm? You have to rely on something technical, something real. But all that stuff is sort of being tossed upside down. But as an academic, I'm sure you there's of course you yeah. want to use the most so updated information. So actually
1: much. Well, so there's much, much more sophisticated flood modeling, right, that's done by a lot of academics. Some of them are our partners and also some other nonprofit and private sector groups. And so this sort of in-out is not at all state-of-the-art when it comes to flood modeling. I think one of the challenges with flood modeling is that you have to combine Storm surge flooding, coastal tidal flooding, fluvial, you know, river overbank flooding, fluvial rainfall flooding, you know, and also flood infrastructure failing. So a dam or a levee fails. So you have all these different things, which are actually different models and you need to stitch them all together to get a sense of flood risk. We at the center don't actually do that modeling. We work with folks who do that kind of modeling. Um, We do the sort of social science work on top of that.
0: Okay. I I looked through some of the reports, and not necessarily just the ones you were working on, but a lot of times there's a series of recommendations that might be at the end of the report. And one of the things I I saw come up over and over again is about, especially when you're dealing just with consumers, when you think about insurance markets and stuff, and it's about giving them more information, more data, and in theory, they're going to make more logical choices. And I thought to myself, I'm, I'm from Florida, and you think about the information that's available about hurricanes and hurricane risk in south florida and rational people would not buy real estate down there and then you look at the mm-hmm. long-term issues of sea level rise and the real estate market is bonkers i don't know there's a little ups and downs and so I, I just thought that was i don't know if disingenuous is the right word but making a recommendation that consume maybe a bigger client that's good but it's just like is that really practical to think that people are going to make rational decisions because they have the best available maps or the best available data?
1: That's a really good question. And I think the answer is a little bit sort of maybe in the sense that I think it's an important starting point that people have access to accurate information and not misleading information. So I think saying you're in or out of a flood zone is a little bit misleading to people. And so we need to be providing actually accurate information. It's not just the probability, but the potential consequences and how it's changing with climate change as well. That said, there's lots of cases where better information isn't going to make people change their behavior at all. And there's a number of different reasons for that, right? And sometimes it's something simple like, or, or not simple, but okay, I know I need to undertake this hazard mitigation measure for my home, but I don't know who to call. I don't know what kind of contractor I can trust. I don't know who does that kind of work. And I don't have the time to take out of my day to do all the research to figure it out. So great. You told me at risk I need to, you know, change my roof or elevate my home, but I don't even know how to start, you know, and then they just don't have the time to deal with it. So it could be something like that. It could be also these behavioral things like it's just who really wants to spend the time thinking about bad things happening when it's sunny outside and you just don't. You have so many other things going on in your life. And when we lived in Maryland, for example, we lived in a neighborhood that routinely had power outages. I mean, it was not uncommon that we'd lose power. And we didn't buy a backup generator until that insane snowstorm in the middle of winter. Like this literally happened to us. We had two young kids And we lost all our power and our heat was electric and it was out for days. And there was no, and we had to like run cords from our neighbor's generator just to heat the house for our kids. You know what I'm saying? And then we were like, why didn't we buy the generator? And so that kind of decision making happens all the time too, right?
0: Yeah. I, and I must be frustrating as academic and I, I, it's no real great answer you can give me because of course you want to be transparent. Of course you want to give the best information, but I just think of someone who lives in a flood zone and you know, it, as you try to present to them information about rebuilding, you know, you don't need to give them fancy maps. You can just say, remember yesterday your house was flooded. Here's your experience with like, uh, where flooding occurs and yet people rebuilding over and over again. And
1: what I was going to say is that I'm really starting to come just personally, I mean, there's a lot of interest, I think, or there's a tendency both by economists and just culturally in the U.S. to not want to impose anything on people. We don't like mandates. We kind of bristle under that. We want people to have free choice and we have a lot of faith in the financial signals of the market. And I think you see that kind of dialogue and hazards a lot, right? Like if we can just price disaster insurance right then that'll send the right signals and people will know what to do. And unfortunately, I think it's not that easy. A lot of times people just don't buy the insurance and then price signals don't matter, you know, whatever it is. And I think that sometimes you really do have to rely on regulations and mandates. And I feel like it's almost a bad word to say that out loud, right? But in a a lot of these cases, we've been recently doing some work looking at programs around the world that provide all hazards insurance to people. So I think this is a good example. So just bear with me for let me explain this for a second. You know, in the US, most so disasters are often excluded from your homeowner's policy. So flood is not included, earthquakes not included, which is what creates these problems, right? So they're not included in your insurance and yet that we think that that's important from a policy perspective, and I think it's important to say why that is, And and so a lot of research has shown that people with insurance recover faster and recover better than people without insurance, and that's because contrary to opinion, disaster aid for individuals is actually really limited, insufficient, and incredibly delayed, and so you can't count on disaster aid to make you whole after a disaster and to get you quickly back on your feet again. And so if you're one of the majority of households in the country who doesn't have $500 in an emergency, if your house is damaged from an extreme storm event or a flood or hurricane or whatever, you are in real financial hardship after that event. And that's why we think insurance is so important. But then, you you know, all these things we're talking about, lots of people just don't buy it. And it could be for these attentiveness reasons and biases and just not thinking about it. It could also be for affordability and I want to just put a pin in that because I'd love to come back to talking about how we really need to help low-income families with resilience. But to finish this this thing, when you look across the world at countries that have said it's important that people have insurance against all disasters no matter what, almost all of those systems mandate it. They put it on everyone and they just charge them a small fee, all the same fee. So they don't do this voluntary, let's educate them and try to get them to buy it. They don't worry about Price signals—they just make everyone buy. It. So that's like France, Spain, New Zealand. Anyway, that was a long way to answer your question. That I think, yes, sometimes that's necessary.
0: <laughs> no, 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 that was very useful. And it's just—I always go back to Florida for the dysfunction, and I—and I think of the insurance markets there. And I thought the private insurance markets were really trying to get out of there. And then, I, if I have it, remember, Citizens is the big state insurance. Is that right? Do you? Do you
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. And they yeah, kind of the came
0: state. in and added dysfunction. They—they <laughs> were sort of the backup. And then but I think one of the papers that you guys wrote, it just talked about just sort of encouraging more of the private insurance to come back into the state or like, what are their options? And just wouldn't a rational private insurance provider not want to be in Florida at all? And wouldn't that in itself help discourage more growth in Florida?
1: (laughs) Those are excellent questions. So, yeah, we recently did some work looking at the emerging private residential flood insurance market. So the private sector has always provided always for, you know, there's been a robust commercial market for floods. So big commercial clients will buy a multi-parallel policy that covers everything and floods in that. There's also been a market on the private in the private sector for flood coverage above the National Flood Insurance Program's cap of $250,000 for very high value homes. But for a long time, there was no private carrier writing sort of first dollar primary flood for homeowners in this country. In the last few years, that started to change. And I guess that probably right now about 5% of residential flood policies in the U.S. are with a private carrier. So it's not much, right? But it is growing and there is interest for the first time. If you look at where those 20% of that, those private policies are in Florida and another 20% are in Puerto Rico, interestingly, for a totally different reason. But if you look at where they are in Florida, they tend not to be along the coast where the risk is highest, right? And when you talk to a lot of these providers, you hear a lot of concern that in order to increase private sector writing of flood insurance in this country, it has to be coupled with much more aggressive floodplain management, zoning, land use, and building codes. And then until the public sector steps up and does a much better job of actually reducing the risk, it's going to be too expensive to transfer the risk, right? So insurance is a form of risk transfer that you really want to do after you've done all the cost-effective risk reduction. And in a lot of places, we haven't done all the cost-effective risk reduction yet. I think that was only half your question. The other half was like the irrationality of the housing markets in Florida, which is a harder thing.
0: Well, I think that goes down to the local government. But I, I what I just don't get is that if you you don't necessarily even have to live on the water or on the beach, but you live a half mile inland. It's just, why can you get you know, flood insurance, or maybe you can't, uh, but are the, is it easy to just buy insurance at sort of every scale in Florida?
1: Well, because of these public programs. So the National Flood Insurance Program can't turn anyone down. They have to offer policy to everyone, no matter how risky you are. So anyone in a participating community can get a flood insurance policy. So yes. (laughs) And similarly with the wind, with the wind coverage in the state, you know, that's what citizens and stuff is there for. So everyone can get an insurance policy.
0: Well, OK, that's a good pivot back to what you wanted to touch upon is low income access to uh, th- this type of I think this is what you wanted with insurance. And it got me thinking that, you know, when you think of climate change and resilience planning and that kind of insurance, you know, there's Medicaid for healthcare for low income people. And th- there's no sort of broad kind of program for low income people. I mean, is that sort of what you're getting at?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that the folks who need disaster insurance the most are those who can least afford it. Right? Affluent people have savings. They, they, it's easy for them to take on credit. They're going to be able to rebuild, right? It's the lower-income, middle-income families that really struggle financially after a disaster event, and yet none of our programs are really means-tested for those groups, which I think is unfortunate. And the issue of flood insurance has gotten a lot of attention. The National Academy of Sciences did a report. I was actually on that committee. FEMA put out a great report at an affordability framework. There's been a number of academic publications. RAND did a great study for New York City looking at this. So there's been a lot of really good work. And all of it points to the need for sort of means-tested assistance With flood insurance, when you think that it provides this important recovery benefit to households and yet nothing has really emerged at the federal level, which is even more frustrating because, you know, this administration's OMB suggested that an affordability program for flood insurance was a good idea. And Democrats in Congress have suggested it's a good idea. And when on earth does that happen? That both both political parties and, you know, the extreme ends of those parties agree on a policy and yet it's still not happening. You know, there's a little bit more to it than that. But it, it's but interestingly, so just but in response to the lack of federal affordability programs, um, three different cities have started trying to address this on their own. New York City, Syracuse, and Portland, Oregon. And we've done some really interesting work with the city of Portland on an innovative program that they did trying to handle flood insurance affordability issues for their community.
0: What I was going to say re- regarding, I think the government, just, they just they need to have more strings attached. And did you hear about that um, managed retreat uh, conference in, at Columbia just uh, last month that did you, you didn't go to that? I
1: did. I wasn't able to attend, but I did see that it was happening and it looked really interesting.
0: You know, I only got to go for the kickoff event. I was doing something else and they just really had just an all-star lineup of people talking about it. And so I I think about national flood insurance and all these people rebuilding in these same areas and – you know, we typically think of managed retreat, you know, coastal sea level rise. But you know, managed retreat could be instead sort of reviewing systems where you have flooding that's going to occur at a more regular basis, that the government should have like a national managed re- retreat map. That if you're going to get sort of insurance or you're going to get rebuild funds, you know, you everyone gets these sort of I think low uh, interest rate funds to rebuild. That you're you're part of the system of like. Putting you in places that you should be, and 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 I think some sort of national, and I'm sure it'd be very controversial. Where what is this national map, managed retreat map? But it, it's just going to be crazy. It's for the next fifty years. It's going to be crazy unless we have some sort of structure to what we're doing.
1: No, I think that's right. I'm not sure um, whether it should be national or local, though, because I think that communities need to be thinking now about where one, they're letting people live and where they're going to put them as they need to retreat and identifying those houses that if and when they're flooded should be the targets for retreat because they're too risky. Do you know what I'm saying? I think I'm sort of echoing your your kind of concept here. And we we did some work looking at all the federal dollars that have been used for buyouts. So these, you know, like giving people money to relocate and then preserving the land as open space, like this is too risky to have property here. And interestingly, we found that one of the biggest problems is that the time it takes those federal dollars to get to people are so long. I'm talking years sometime. And so think about that. You're flooded. You could be ready to relocate then, right? Like you've had it. It's too risky and you need to start rebuilding your life. If you could get the money for a buyout, then you might be really happy to move somewhere safer, right? But if you can't get the money for a buyout, then you have to make a decision, right? Do you start to rebuild and repair your home? Can you finance moving on your own? And then maybe you're selling your property to someone who's just gonna flip it or whatever and not actually preserve it as open space. So we still have the problem that someone's living in this unsafe area. And if you start rebuilding your home and a year goes by and two years go by and the flood has become a distant memory and you've already invested money in fixing things up, then you don't want to buy out, right? And you know, then you've already you know, then you're settled back in. And and so a lot of the money for these things comes through either FEMA's Hazard Mitigation Grant Program or the Department of Housing and Urban Development's Community Development Block Disaster Relief Program, the CDBGDR Program, which is a mouthful. But both of those pots of dollars can take literally years to get to people and that is a huge problem. So we need to be able to prioritize who's going to get a buyout with federal dollars and let them get the money right away, right? <laughs> you got me going on that. One.
0: Well, I just spoke to the New York City's office of resiliency and I was sort of I made a flipping comments like, "Oh, you guys got a ton of money and you're so well funded." And they just kind of shook their heads and they were sort of saying they do have access to some of these pots, especially after Hurricane Sandy, but they were saying what you exactly what you're saying is that very siloed, we can only use it for very specific reasons that are not integrated with maybe sort of a you know a more systematic approach with dealing with all these things. and again it took time for the money to kind of come through and they they kind of schooled me on my notion that oh well, New York got all this money, so yeah, it's not easy.
1: No, it's not easy. And I think that this is getting to this broader issue of how we fund disaster recovery, right? And what you see is that after really big events, Harvey, Sandy, Katrina. We dump billions of dollars on communities, often through the HUD programs. And so local governments have to quickly, in the chaos of rebuilding and disaster, stand up programs, right? Staff them up, design them, all this stuff, which takes a really long time. And then it's also open to all these things you've seen in the news for different kinds of fraud and abuse and waste, right? Because it's just chaotic to do things like that. And meanwhile, we're putting very little money into pre Disaster risk reduction into planning to make the post disaster process easier and also small localized events. So there's really heavy rainfall in my community and we have a really bad problem, but it doesn't make the national, you know, it's not a national disaster. They don't get any federal dollars. And so I think that creates a lot of problems. And some folks have suggested, I know there's been talk about, you know, taking some of these HUD dollars. And what if you made them a standing program so that they were going out every year? And some of it could be pre-disaster and some of it could be planning and communities could, you know, develop better programs and have some consistency in them, et cetera. So I think there are things we could do, but I think they take a very large political lift and they need some political leadership.
0: Uh, I think climate change was created (laughs) to identify all the dysfunction that exists in every lever of government. I sometimes when I do these podcasts, I reach out to colleagues and ask them for some questions and they might have some sort of overlap what you do and it helps me kind of out. And so one of the things I want to point out is that some of the work that you've done and I think at the center is that the terminology and you you've I don't know if you've changed this and maybe correct me, but you the term natural disasters and this person who deals with that in sort of the natural resource setting had a problem with that term. And do, do you know what I'm talking about?
1: You mean because they're really man-made disasters because you only get disasters when you put people at risk?
0: Right. And so just reinforcing this notion of this sort of natural kind of conflict with what we're doing with – and I guess the point is that it's all about the human origins to these troubles.
1: Yeah, and I try to differentiate sort of natural hazards, which is just the underlying hazard, from the risk, which is created when we put people and capital in the path of the hazard. So – I, I saw a exactly
0: title right. of the paper yeah. had natural disasters, in it. so I'm just uh, speaking on <laughs> <laughs> so just be aware you know, be said uh of course, you can use whatever. I'm just saying that so you know there's the different players within disaster management, and that's uh natural disasters is is terminology that's just like, oh, that's not what it is, and so i I don't know if it kind of comes up in your circles.
1: You know, I think the point that we contribute to disaster risk is right on and has to be at the center of our discussion of this. I think that when you're talking with the general public, you know, those terminology choices don't mean much to them. So I think it might depend what audience you're kind of engaging with. Right. And there are people who will very much understand the difference between a natural hazard and natural and disaster risk and what, you know, and there's. Other people whose eyes will gloss over. So,
0: <laughs> oh, you're going to hear from this person. Oh, <laughs> that's right. I sort of want to do a final pivot here because I mean, I know it seems like we just snapped our fingers, even though we've gone through a lot of wonky stuff. At this time has flown by, actually. And so, you are at a university, and do you work with students much?
1: Yes, in different ways.
0: Okay, so Were sometimes. That in a certain direction yeah, right. Was- if, if you said no, then I would be like, well, none of these questions are going to be relevant because sometimes <laughs> academics at institutes, they might not work with students at all, but you, you work with students, probably graduate students and such. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a recurring kind of conversation that kind of comes up, especially with uh, students who are looking to get into the adaptation field. And there's a lot of expertise out there. It's people like you, and especially with adaptation in the last 10 years or even five years of these institutes, nonprofits really gearing up their expertise in the issue of adaptation. But university programs really aren't offering much in the way of programmatic work in climate change adaptation. And maybe you disagree, but how is Wharton doing it? Is it through your center? Or does is there a broader program there that's really kind of digging full on into adaptation? Or do you kind of see you can get other skill sets and sort of jump into it anyway?
1: So I think Wharton isn't doing as much on this. I mean, we do a little bit on sort of some risk and insurance topics and a little bit on sustainability. Our center works with students. We're actually launching this fall, a student fellows program that I'm really excited about. But Penn more broadly does a little bit more. So the School of Design, for example, just recently launched a certificate in urban resilience, which is interesting. And I think speaks to the growing interest in this. And it's really fun. I think when we team up with the design school because a business school and a design school working together is something you don't see all the time. And I. I think that we're able to have some really interesting insights that way. And I've seen some other schools, you know, so for example, a colleague uh, runs a program at Rutgers that has a certificate in coastal resilience, I think it is. And so I think you're seeing more of these certificate programs popping up, and maybe that's because they're a little bit of an easier lift than, you know, starting a whole new major or something. But I think it's starting to change.
0: I'm surprised, and I I have Canadian listeners, and there's actually some full-on adaptation programs up there. And it's just a bit surprising because, as as you know, like your center – and then there's institutes where, you know, are being created at various universities around adaptation, around climate change. But there just seems to be a huge disconnect with programmatic availability for students. You know, students can take a course here or there, but maybe that's not how adaptation is going to develop. But I just I find it interesting. And, you know, that gap, I think, could probably lead to some issues later on.
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. one I haven't thought about before, I'll need to reflect on it. But, you know, whether you need specialized training and adaptation Or whether you need climate and adaptation integrated into everything, right? So you're getting trained to be a water manager or you're getting trained in power systems or you're getting trained in business or, you know, planning or whatever it is. And you need to understand how climate's impacting your sector. And so what you really need is your traditional training plus the climate adaptation as opposed to. Only getting the, I mean, as opposed to there being some separate adaptation training. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. I haven't thought about that, but I think that's an interesting question.
0: University of Waterloo in Canada, they have like an adaptation masters program, and it's really quite elaborate. They have a lot of coursework, and I'm just surprised the U.S. institutions there hasn't really. There's a lot of decisions to be made. Of like, do you want to kind of go that way? since I have you on and we'll see if you will be able to answer this is that I, I hear from people all the time. And I hear from students that are interested in getting to adaptation. And I actually recently heard, and I said, I was going to share this one in my interview with you that maybe you could help with this question. So let me read this to you really quick. Hello, America adapts. because that's me. Um, my name is <laughs> Isaac Jendler. I have Just graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering, and I'm really passionate about infrastructure resilience and climate change adaptation research. I'm interested in going on to a Ph.D. in this field, but don't know where to start. Since you are an expert on all things adaptation, being very generous, I am curious (laughs) if we could talk over the phone about what you see as the frontiers that need to be broken. Thanks, and have a wonderful day. And I told him, I'm like, hey, I'm having this guest that's at a university and, and related to this, and maybe she could help me answer this question. What sort of advice would you give Isaac?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not an engineer, so I can't specifically talk to programs or people in that field. But I think to your point earlier that there aren't really adaptation. you know I've never heard of getting a PhD in adaptation as a possibility anywhere. But I think what you do is when you enter a PhD program, you're really doing that to become a researcher and who you work with can mean a lot. And so what I would suggest that someone like that do is identify the engineering programs where there are faculty on You know, at the school that are thinking about issues of adaptation and resilience so that your PhD would be in whatever type of engineering it is that you do. Again, I'm not an engineer, so it might sound weird talking about it because I don't really know what I'm saying, but that you can go somewhere there's, where there's people who are thinking about what adaptation means for your discipline. And I think that would be true for any discipline, you know, so economics, I know more. And there are schools that have faculty who are really grappling with questions of climate economics, right? And if that's what interests you, then you should go to those schools, not other economics departments where no one's thinking about that. So I think as opposed to trying to find a PhD program in adaptation, find the PhD program in engineering that is populated with people who care about adaptation.
0: Well, you might not have that engineering background, but I would just say that even if he goes and looks at sort of the topics that you cover, if he's looking at infrastructure resilience, you know, risk management is a huge part of that. And so Mm -hmm. for him to kind of understand how you guys are approaching it, maybe that informs him on like the the various kind of engineering programs, like are they really truly kind of factoring these things in. So I I do think there's kind of like he could learn something from just even checking out your center. So.
1: Oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, and I think that things are really evolving rapidly because there's so much growing interest. I mean, we have just seen so much student interest in these topics. And I'll tell you a quick example because it involves the engineering department. Penn is home to, I think, I might, I'm, I don't think I'm wrong in saying the largest student-run hackathon or the first student-run hackathon something in the country. They have this huge hackathon every year. And they have different routes that, pe- that the students compete in. They spend a weekend. You have to develop a hack, uh, software or hardware, and you enter it into, you know, into roots and companies will sponsor prizes. Like if you use our API and your hack is the best, you get this prize. And they've started to have some roots that have to do more with um, not specific companies, but like, you know, public good type things. And so we last year did one called the Hack for Resilience, where we teamed up with the Insurance Information Institute and offered prizes for hacks that promoted resilience. And, I'll tell you, going into it, I really downplayed it. I didn't think we were going to get any interest. I was like really hopeful if one team would be interested. And we got so many applications that we had to pick. You know, we gave prizes to two, but we made a top 10 list because there were so many students doing hacks for resilience and going around and judging them and talking to them was so inspiring. I mean, so these were sort of coders and stuff, right? Like, again, not my field. And they just came up with the most innovative things to help people be better prepared for the changes that are coming. So I, you know, I have to think about things like that to have hope for the future because it's very easy to get concerned, right?
0: Well, and that that is great. That's great anecdotal sort of information that they're just I, I hear from students all the time that are just desperate to kind of get into a field in climate change that really kind of makes a difference in adaptation, I think, really speaks to a lot of them. But it's just that kind of explaining to them how they kind of get in there. It's It's not that easy.
1: And I think that maybe, you know, one piece of advice, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but that is Really to just start where you are, because climate now touches almost everything. And so, you know, whatever the kind of specific domain is that you're working in or your skill set, you can contribute and make a real difference.
0: I don't know if you consider yourself like an adaptation professional. I mean, I guess answer that. Do you do you consider yourself like in that field now?
1: You know, I, I consider myself moving more and more towards that field.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. That's a good prompt. And so are you familiar with the National Adaptation Forum?
1: Yes. I mean, yeah. I haven't been, but I am familiar with it.
0: Okay. And so I guess that's a question. I mean, there's a limited amount of conferences I'm sure you can go to, but it seems like there's a lot of overlap at what's happening at that forum with what you do. I guess, what would it take for you to kind of say, this really is an area that I need to be going to?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I wasn't able to go this year because I had a conflict on those exact days where I had to do something else, and so I was planning to go and then I couldn't. But I listened to your podcast on it, and after I listened to it, I was like, Oh wow, I really need to make a note to go to that next year. So maybe you've you've changed things.
0: (laughs) Oh, you hear that, Laura Hansen? (laughs) Or you feel like you don't need to go because you felt like you were already there. No, that's (laughs) you should definitely go. (laughs) <laughs> you know it's the only sort of adaptation conference that's really focused on that issue and i i, I asked my guests like have you heard of it or you go to these things and it's just i'm obviously very interested in sort of creating a, a community of i call them adapters and so what you're doing obviously i think is climate adaptation you there's, uh, it's more than just that but this whole landscape of adaptation how you kind of see and you sort of alluded to it that you feel like it's more and more coming a, a priority for you but w- yeah. what what's your general sense of the field though
1: I think that it's coming into its own and I think that one of the most exciting things about it for me is that these challenges are so interdisciplinary and they require different sectors and different skills and different disciplines to all work together to really solve them and I think that that's exciting and I think that that's starting to happen more and more. You know, so I think about financing questions, you know, how are we going to pay for this? Who's going to pay for it? What are the implications of that? What does that do to our incentives? But to even start to answer those questions, you have to understand like, well, what's going to happen in the first place and to who and what are the impacts? You need scientists, you need other types of social scientists, you need. And so that makes it hard. But I think that group that's starting to gel more, right, that these people from different perspectives are realizing they really have to work together to make progress.
0: Yeah, great answer. And You guys, I'm sure you're very selective in how you work and the idea of like you have clients that you're working with or who you do outreach to. But let's say my average listener who's sort of in this field and wants to learn more about this because it's relevant to their work. What would you recommend to them to take advantage of the work that you're doing?
1: Send me an email. (laughs) No, we have most of our stuff up online. I think we try to keep things public. We need to maybe do a better job of that. But if you kind of poke around, I'm sure you can find a lot of what we're doing. But yeah, I'm really interested to keep learning more about this and figure out how the particular skill sets we have here at the center can be more useful in improving climate outcomes. So I am. If anyone listens to this and wants to chat, I'd be very thrilled as that's an outcome of talking to you today. <laughs>
0: Someone better be listening to this. <laughs> yeah. You'll be surprised. I bet you here because the fact you said email me, you encourage them, you're going to get some emails probably after this gets <laughs> out there. So be ready for them. Okay. So final question that I ask all my guests and you might know what's coming. is like, if you could recommend a guest to come on the show, who would it be?
1: I should have prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: spontaneous answers sometimes are more interesting too. those so.
1: um that's a good question
0: i think about what people you work with or maybe like some of the gaps what, what do you want to hear more about like and who who are maybe there's an on the ground person or maybe there's just a really great what
1: i really like hearing from actually are local people solving things where they are i feel like the problems are huge and upsetting. And I read a lot of that and get a lot of that. And I really like seeing solutions. And I think in the field of climate adaptation, a lot of the solutions are actually small and it's their cumulative impact that's going to be so important. And so it's, you know, in this place, we changed this. And I like those kind of stories because I find them uplifting and I find when things are uplifting it keeps you going
0: (laughs) great recommendation there was not a specific name but i get it and um when i just went to new york i was able to talk to quite a few people on the ground and they do have sort of the awesome anecdotes of what's really kind of happening so i agree i need to do more of that okay carolyn this has been such a treat to have you on i know this is wonky stuff but you made it exciting you made it come alive and this is like the real bread and butter stuff around adaptation and it's so important and I'm encouraged by uh, the, the, what you, your center is doing. And it just, I think hopefully the word kind of gets out more and the resources that you have, but thanks again for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to chat. I love talking about this stuff, as you know.
0: Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Carolyn Kouski for coming on the podcast. Please check out some of the links in my show notes to dig into the work Carolyn is doing at the University of Pennsylvania. There seem to be some great opportunities to work with Caroline on risk management. You heard her. She said, reach out to her. Penn is an incredibly re- prestigious institution and great to see the work they are doing at the policy incubator. As I've said numerous times, we are still in the early days of adaptation. Places like the policy incubator will help define the policy prescriptions for climate impacts in the years and decades ahead. Climate impacts are only going to increase and we are woefully unprepared In our policy responses to deal with these impacts, there has to be some major reform in insurance markets to help drive more rational decisions. The markets are still looking to governments to set up a regulatory and policy framework so they can provide reasonable insurance options. If you're doing some innovative work in your local community on policy response to flooding and other risks, please reach out to Carolyn. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. All right, some final housekeeping. You hear me talk about how you can help support the podcast and what we're here doing at America DApps. Of course, we'd love your financial support. There's a link to the We Did a Donate page. And yes, please, that's the only way I can keep doing what I'm doing here. But there's also other ways that you can support if you can't support financially. Please consider plugging the podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Word of mouth is the greatest way podcasts grow. And within my show notes, you'll see all sorts of ways that you can share the various apps, Pandora, Spotify, most people listen on Apple Podcasts. Please share a link on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It would be greatly appreciated. And don't forget to join the Facebook page in the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll approve you right away. We have some insider conversations. People share some really cool uh, links to, obviously, adaptation-related stories, and sometimes it leads to a great discussion. And... On that note, I love hearing from you. I hear from people all week long, and it's and sometimes I just hear from the oddest things. It's really quite uh, awesome. I love it. So just say hi, or if you have a suggestion for guests, please reach out. It is the highlight of my week, and I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. All right, check out that website again at americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.